0: Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is Fundamentals of Organizing, where we're talking with organizers about the craft. Today, our guest is Pamela Twiss. Pamela Twiss has been organizing for more than 35 years. She is one of the best developers of organizers I have ever met. Over and over, I run into people of all ages who attribute their development as an organizer to their relationship with Pamela. She does this first and foremost through the practice of agitation. Her organizing pedigree is too long to list here, but she was co director of Isaiah, a faith based organization in Minnesota, organizing director at Take Action Minnesota, and director of training at People's Action. Today, she is coaching and training organizers all across the country. Hey, Pamela. Hey, George. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, so happy to be here.
0: So, when did you first become an organizer?
1: 1980 six. I was doing social work. I was a group Hmm. home counselor, but I really wanted to, you know, make the world a better place. And it I wasn't having the impact there that I that I wanted to have on the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't hear about, I mean you hear about the civil rights movement and anti apartheid movement, but you don't think of organizing as a career. And I met a guy at a party who worked for the New Hampshire People's Alliance. And he was talking about his job. And I had this sense of, well, I, I have an important faith life, uh, important to me. And I just remember feeling like, this is really important. God sent this person to you. You should listen to him. Hmm. You know. Wow. And the next day, I went to the New Hampshire People's Alliance office and said, I want to be an organizer. <laughs> now, they didn't hire me right away, but I was so impacted by the this guy's story of what he did every day.
0: And what was it about the story? Like, what? Separated it from everything else you knew about change.
1: The fact that he was interested in the root causes of things Mm. and the fact that he was involving people in determining their own destiny, in shaping their own destiny, and the fact that people were fighting against injustice. Like, I don't think I really knew how that, you know, helping people is very different than fighting against injustice. Mm -hmm. And I'd been helping people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, you know, the kids in our group home came from all sorts of unjust situations. And I felt helpless about the, that bigger picture.
0: Yeah. Who were some early mentors that really taught you the craft and, and things that you still hold on to today?
1: I had one super important mentor, and that was Paul Marinsell. And I met him after I'd been organizing for six years, when I moved to Minnesota. I almost quit organizing and made an important decision to stay in but to find a good situation because there's mm. you know, there's lots of, <laughs> lots of great organizing jobs out there. And so I was very careful about looking for an organization in Minnesota that I wouldn't be alone, I wouldn't be the only organizer. And people had a methodology Mm -hmm. And people had had success. Like, Mm -hmm. I was like, if I'm going to be an organizer, I really want to learn what I'm doing. And um, I met these faith-based organizing folks. And uh, Paul Marincel hired me to work with him at the St. Paul Ecumenical Alliance of Congregations. He came up through uh, Minnesota COACT and, like, the Peace Corps in the states that everybody got into organizing in that generation. The VISTA? Vista, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And had connected to the Gamaliel Foundation and faith-based organizing. And he's a very deep practicing Catholic. His whole career has been in faith-based organizing practically Mm. after those early first years. Um, But Paul's the one who really invested in me as a human being and as an organizer and taught me from the inside out what leadership development was. Hmm. Because he developed me as a leader Mm -hmm. in a way that nobody had before that.
0: Pamela, I talk to people all the time, like a lot of people that actually cite you as the person that had the biggest impact on them and their leadership development as an organizer. So what goes into developing somebody?
1: Well, I think, I mean, the most important thing is having a vision of their greatness. Hmm. Like seeing past the stuff that annoys you about them or that they don't do (laughs) that well or you know, whatever, their immaturity, and seeing the potential. Hmm. And Paul did that with me, and I, I turned out to be very good at that with other people. And then it's having an overt conversation with them. That's what agitation is. It's agitating them, but it's that conversation in the way it's done in the kind of community organizing I learned is telling somebody your vision of their greatness. And asking them what they think of that. Do they have a vision of their own greatness? And what's in the way? What's the difference between me today and me in this vision as a very powerful organizer? Or fill in the blank. Very powerful elected official. Very powerful whatever. Because we all have things. Mm -hmm. Like, Like that agitation is about really being honest with people about what you see both that's in their way and that they're capable of. And... I had been hungry for that. I just didn't know. I would had lots of experiences of things not going quite how I wanted and asking for feedback and getting, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, that was great, honey. You know, Mm -hmm. that was fine. And what I wanted was really honest feedback about where I'd made misjudgments, where I'd showed up ineffectively, where I was in relationships that weren't powerful. Like that's that was the feedback that allowed me to make change, but cuz I didn't have to feel ashamed about it. I had I had to feel like, "All right, like what do I think of this feedback and what do I want to do with it?"
0: Mm. I mean, obviously you're a big believer and practitioner of agitation. Why are you such a believer? And like, I mean, really, what does it look like? Break it down for a minute. Um, I don't want to make no assumptions here.
1: Well, I'm a believer because it changed me. So, like my biggest struggle was caretaking. I was uh very sympathetic person. I think we're socialized, women in particular are socialized to take care of people, to be uh, sympathetic to their struggles, which is good. We wanna be sympathetic to people's struggles, but that shouldn't get in the way of us having a vision of what they're capable of as well, right? So I was not very good at holding my leaders accountable. I wasn't doing big asks of people. I was um, sometimes like doing people's work for them. And it was all just condescending to them is mm-hmm. what I learned when, I w- when Paul agitated me about it. It was me not really believing people were capable mm-hmm. of doing the work of organizing, of building bases in their apartment buildings or mm-hmm. you know, conducting research visits without having their hands held every minute or writing their own testimony or whatever the thing was. I couldn't get to doing big asks of people or holding them accountable effectively until I got over my own caretaking tendencies, which, you know, were deep. Are deep. It's still something I struggle with.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, how do you agitate somebody? There's got to be a framework or something. You just can't come in yeah. kicking ass. Like what? What's it look like?
1: Yeah. Well, it starts with with your vision of the greatness. Yeah. It starts with and 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 your self interest in them. Why do I care about this person? Hmm. Like, this isn't, you know, I'm not just going to go around agitating anybody in the world, (laughs) right? Like, I have to have a reason to want to make that kind of an investment and um, be clear about why I'm making that investment and clear about what I think someone is capable of. Then it's thinking about, like, what is in the way? What's in the way of a person living into their greatness? And it's not a thousand, we're human beings. There's not a thousand different things, it's a fear, you know. We're protecting. Our fear causes us to protect ourselves, but sometimes that protection gets in our way. Mm-hmm. So, I worked a lot with women leaders at Speak, and I can remember agitating a particular leader because I'd invited her to be the chair of a committee, and she'd said, "No, no, no. You know, I'm. I don't want to do that role." And my judgment was that she was saying that she wasn't capable because she was afraid of the responsibility. Mm-hmm. She was afraid she would fail. And so I said, like, in my mind, you're completely capable of doing this role. What I think is going on is you're afraid of failing, so you don't want to take the risk. But the problem is, if you don't take the risk, then you don't grow. And if, if you don't grow, this committee doesn't grow. And we don't build the power we need. At that point, we were working on some housing stuff in St. Paul, and we can't get the kind of affordable housing we want here. And you care deeply about that, because I'd done a one-to-one with her. You've lived in affordable housing. You know your family members who need affordable housing. If you're not willing to take a risk, then it's hard to build the power to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And she said, yeah, that's right. (laughs) So what will it take for you to take the risk? So it's, it's giving somebody a choice. And agitation is giving somebody a choice based on their stated values, based on what they want to do in the world.
0: So what I hear is you would come to a meeting or a moment in a relationship that you have, that you're clear why you have it. Yes. You have an, you have an interest in this person for a real reason, uh, that you've developed a vision of who they could be in the world, that they maybe haven't uncovered for themselves. Yes. You've identified a gap between where there are are now in that vision and like what's blocking it. And then when you kind of expose that tension or contradiction, you also do it in the context of what all's getting left on the table in terms of moving their values and what they care in the world. Like those are the components I hear you saying, is that right or?
1: Yeah, there's a cost when people don't take the risks involved in building power and people should, make a decision with the, those costs in mind.
0: If that's what agitation done well looks like, what does it look like when it's maybe sloppy or misunderstood? Oh, yeah, <laughs> it
1: doesn't start grounded in a vision of person's greatness. It's just like, I'm annoyed, so <laughs> I'm gonna tell you what I think is wrong with you. You know, it's a it's a skill like anything else and it's it's a hard skill to learn. Even when people are sincerely trying to learn it, It can be awkward and messy, and we need grace with each other, right? I mean, I've done so many really bad agitations. (laughs) You know, sometimes you make wrong judgments about people, but I think at the heart of it, if I start it with, this is my vision of your greatness, and like it's clear that I'm trying to make an investment, people have given me a lot of grace. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I've seen that over and over with other folks, too.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I want to come to back to something you, you, you brought up Paul Marinsall who, you know, played a big role in Isaiah, really yes. important faith-based organization in in Minnesota. And I've been thinking a lot about like, there's just some organizations that just crank out talent. Like yeah. you can name lots of really good organizers that came out of there. And then there's some, you, you have a harder time. Like What do you think are some of the qualities of organizations that consistently produce and develop those
2: organizers?
1: Well, I think the culture of agitation and the culture of growth are very similar. Mm. Because the thing about agitation is all that stuff, like, you know, as human beings, we get bugged by each other, you know? (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And oftentimes the stuff that bugs people about me is stuff that I would benefit from knowing about in an agitational way as opposed to an annoyed way or having you gossip about me behind my back.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I just had a conversation like this yesterday. I had an agitational conversation yesterday with John Washington about something I put in an email and he called me up and he agitated me. And it was so beautiful because Mm -hmm. without that kind of culture in the center, um, and it allowed me to know that people's act that John Washington operates that with a culture and people's action operates with that, that culture because he called me and he said, you wrote something that concerns me. And I want to talk with you about like why and mm-hmm. and what. And I was open to that because I want that kind of feedback. I don't want to be walking around in the world, you know, being less effective than I could be. Right. And so I think that culture of we're all growing we all have things we're working on. You, we never stop having growth edges. And I want you to talk to me about my growth edges, and I'm going to take the risk of talking to you. Because it's so countercultural, it doesn't always mm-hmm. go
2: well. Yeah. You know? It's yes. really countercultural. Oh, yeah.
1: But then, but then you end up in organizations where anytime somebody's annoyed, they don't use that as a, oh, maybe if this is something I should agitate that person about. It turns into, this is something I'm going to gossip about them about or Mm -hmm. judge them about behind their back. And, you know, it just becomes like underground and toxic. Yep. And agitation, like, creates a healthy organization where we can all grow and, like, we expect that people are going to agitate us. We expect we're not going to be doing everything perfectly. We're going to expect people are going to raise. You would be so much more effective if you weren't caretaking or, you know, we're more conscious of
2: mm-hmm.
1: the racial messages you're sending or mm-hmm. which is the conversation John had with me yesterday and that I want that yeah and I want that relationship with John
0: I think most people at least don't think they want that <laughs> like I think any a lot of people listening that might be like are not part of an agitational culture sound like man that sounds that sounds scary uh, I, I kind of like it where I'm at right now like what are people missing out on like
1: Here's the funny thing. When you have the experience in your gut of being lovingly agitated, of being agitated out of somebody else's self-interest in you and their understanding of your self-interest, then you start getting hungry for it. The thing that started happening at Speak and then Isaiah is that at first leaders are resistant to agitation. Then they get, oh, like I'm growing and learning from this. And then they're mad if you're not agitating them.
2: Right, right, right. You meet with them,
1: and you're like, "Let's prepare for this hearing or something." And you get to the end of the meeting, and they'll say, "Well, don't you have an agitation for me?" It's like, "Oh God, no! I didn't prepare an agitation for you, but you know, well, next time you better have an agitation for me."
0: That's. I mean, that happened. Oh yeah, I believe it, and it's funny you say that. I'm remembering relationships of mine that got a lot stronger. And maybe not, pr- I mean, pretty imperfect relationships, but people I needed to be in relationship with when I actually started agitating. And coming prepared, not like, you know, off the cuff, just like, I'm going to do one because we have five minutes left in the meeting and I got to do it. But like, but I'd actually changed the relationship. And then people said, wow, there is something that George provides in my life that I'm not getting anywhere else. And uh, it's not always comfortable, but I'm going to grow and I want to grow. Yep. Yep. Okay, I want to move to something else here. Organizer training. You've- trained, I would think, thousands of organizers at this point, and, you know, did a ton of training in Gamaliel, I'm sure organizations I don't know, and you were the training director at National People's Action and People's Action for years. Why is training so important?
1: This is so, you know, it's, I am the least likely person, George, to be a training director.
0: <laughs> well, Do you know this? I did not know Without this. I, you know, that you didn't bring this up when we talked about you becoming the training director. <laughs>
1: So when I first met Paul Marinsell and went to speak, Paul said, after, you know, I was doing one-to-ones and stuff, he said, all right, so it's time for you to start training one-to-ones. And I said, oh, I don't train. I'm not good in front of a room. And I, I organized for six years and gotten other people to train my leaders. Hmm. I know I sent them off to Midwest Academy or I hired somebody locally, but I never trained my leaders. Hmm. And because my story about myself was, like, I'm not good in front of a room. I'm not a performer. Mm. I'm very shy. Like, I don't do that. And uh, Paul said, well, an organizer does three things. Trains, strategizes, and agitates. And training is the first thing on the list. So if you're not a trainer, you're, you're not an organizer here. <laughs> it's <was> like, <laughs> like, like, no caretaking, right? Just like, right. You're, you're about to quit your job, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I said, well, I guess I'm training then. And it was horrific. It was just me standing up in front of a room of people. I would turn bright red. I couldn't hear anything because I was in such a panic. George, people would be talking to me, and I wouldn't hear what they said. So I wouldn't Mm -hmm. know how to respond. And sometimes somebody would jump in and help co-train. And sometimes they would just let me flail around for an hour and waste people's time. I mean, it was... Terrible. And I would ask Paul and other really great trainers, like fantastic trainers, I'd say, can I have the training outline for your one-to-one training, your self-interest training? And they would hand me a piece of paper with like six bullet points on it. And they'd just done a two-hour training on these six bullet points. And I said, this, is, this isn't gonna work for me. So I watched and watched and took copious notes of great trainers, John Norton, Paul Marincel, uh, Mary Gonzalez, just like everybody, mm-hmm. Don Floyd, like everybody I could get my hands on. And I wrote very detailed outlines that I could mm. use with like, here are the agitations, here's the content pieces, here's what should be on the flip charts, like just very detailed. And then when other people needed training outlines, they would send them to me. They'd say, well, here's my six bullet points, but you could also get Pamela's 10-page outline.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: so then other people, you know, we started working on making good outlines that way. But I found out that I wasn't the only one who wasn't just like a naturally gifted trainer. And so those people became people I would mentor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just kind of fell into that. And over time, I got better at training, but it was a long slog.
0: But why invest so much in it? What's so great about training?
1: Oh, because it's so transformational training so transformed me and being a trainer so transformed me and it's created the culture of Isaiah. Yeah. I saw how what we did in the training room then translated into conversations I was having with my leaders which translated into people growing and taking more responsibility which translated into power. Like, yeah. straight line.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, tell me a story of an organization that decided to adopt and, and or maybe always had a agitational culture and through that built Significant membership and power and then was able to win things.
1: Okay. So I would love to tell you the story of Speak and the Brownfields campaign. Hmm. Because I came in kind of when we were just starting Speak, and I had a leadership team that was trying to do something about access to jobs on the east side of St. Paul, which was a pretty low-income neighborhood, and we were beginning to ask ourselves some questions about who decides things in St. Paul. And there was a state legislator named Myron Orfield who came around and said, so most of the things decided in St. Paul aren't decided here. Like follow the money, it's in the region and it's at the, in the state. And look at all the money in the region and look at all the decisions they're making for you in St. Paul. And you can't just always go to your city council member to solve problems. And we were like, that's very interesting. So we went (laughs) down to this regional body called the Metropolitan Council. And we just went down to one of their meetings one day. And we looked at the sign-in list. And it was all developers and people from the outer ring suburbs, people from Eden Prairie and Farmington and just like the second ring of suburbs. There was not a single person from St. Paul there. And all they did was talk about giving away large amounts of money to develop new suburbs. And we were like, damn, like what's going on? So we decided to cut an issue that would get at reducing the inequities between the cities and the outer ring suburbs, because the bulk of the money in the region was going to the outer ring suburbs. Um, And we were paying into it. Mm -hmm. And we had needs too. And so I had a leadership team of people, and we did a bunch of research visits with that very simple question. If you could do one thing to reduce the inequities between the outer ring suburbs and the core cities, what would you do? And, and we got a lot of the answers we expected around, well, housing, build housing in the suburbs, or transportation, have better transportation so people in St. Paul can get out to jobs in the suburbs and stuff like that. But then we heard a little bit of this other thing, clean up the brownfields in the city. And the east side of St. Paul had a giant toxic waste site. And a Met council member we met with named Steve Wellington said, if you cleaned up that toxic waste site, you could create thousands of jobs right in the neighborhood of east siders. And we thought that's a really good idea. (laughs) Like we should pursue an issue cut around that. So we did more research. We found out that to clean up the toxic waste sites in the state would cost $100 million. We were trying to figure out how do you pay for these, this cleanup. And somebody said bonds, you have to sell bonds. So we're in the basement of a church in St. Paul and we're talking to the expert on bonds from this Metropolitan Council. And we say to him, we want to sell hundred million dollars worth of bonds to clean up toxic waste sites in Minnesota. And he says, well, you can't do that. And we said, well, you sell bonds to build roads and parking lots and everything out in the outer ring suburbs. Why can't you sell bonds to clean up toxic waste sites? And he says, "Well, we know that there's going to be, you know, housing developments and malls and all that stuff, so we think it's a good investment." And we had a report from the St. Paul Port Authority of all the businesses that would locate in that big area on the east side if we cleaned it up. We knew it was going to create jobs. We were 100% sure. St. Paul was turning away people who wanted to locate there every year, so we showed him that report, and he said, "Well, it's apples and oranges." And we said, "It's not apples and oranges." We have proof that businesses will come here. He said, well, do you have it on like in writing on the dotted line? And we said, well, do you have it in writing from housing developers and mall developers that they're going to, you know, build in Farmington if you if you put all the money out there? And he said, well, no, but it's apples and oranges. And you could feel the room, George. Hmm. It was not apples and oranges. It was the same thing. But somehow St. Paul had to jump through hoops that Eden Prairie and Farmington didn't have to. You see what I mean?
0: Yeah. Yes, I see what you mean. And
1: somebody in the room said, this sounds like racism, not apples and oranges.
2: Hmm.
1: And that was our hook. It was racism. Yeah. And so we started talking with people in our churches about that. We started framing the issue that way. The Metropolitan Council spends money in a racist way. And to support cities that have exclusionary zoning, mm-hmm. but not to invest in in the engine of economic development in the core. Yeah. And sure enough, when we went to the Capitol, it became a fight between urban and suburban legislators. And we heard stuff from suburban legislators that was, that just reinforced this narrative. Like, why should we put all this money into a black hole? <laughs> I mean, just that overt. And so... We were really stuck in this urban-suburban legislator thing, and all the rural legislators were just on the sidelines. This is just an urban fight. Mm -hmm. But we realized that rural cities were not able to use the brownfield money because they couldn't use it for testing and making their remediation plans. So we put a thing in the bill that said, you can use this for the whole process from the beginning to the end. And then we did two weeks of cold-calling city managers saying, do you know about House Bill whatever it was? it will deliver money to your city to test and Mm. make a plan and clean up the toxic waste in your city. Look it up and call your legislator and tell them to support it. And after a week, George, you just started seeing the whole dynamic shift. Like suddenly rural legislators and urban legislators had common cause. And we won. We won $60 million. It's
2: not bad.
0: Not
1: bad. (laughs) And now, if you go to the east side of St. Paul, you'll see a whole office park and jobs all over the place that used to just be empty toxic land.
0: It's amazing.
1: Yeah, it was a great campaign.
0: Winning's fun, right?
1: Winning's really fun. But the yeah, the point is that like all these research visits, all these cold calls, like all this stuff was leader driven.
0: Is that right? I was gonna ask. That's great.
1: Oh yeah. This was We probably did 30 research visits to cut the brownfield issue in the first place.
0: What does it mean to cut an issue?
1: It's both the way to take a thorny, big, undefined problem and turn it into an actionable campaign with a clear demand, a clear target, somebody in power who can grant that demand, a narrative that uh, gets people focused on systemic causes and not blaming Mm. the victim. So that's the, that's the what, but what's more important is the how. Hmm. Like cutting an issue is the process by which you develop leaders hmm. to, to have a power analysis, to understand who's, who's making decisions about their lives, to not just be righteous, but to be curious about the self-interest of people, even people they disagree with. Hmm. That's the thing about research visits, why they're so good is for people, is somebody may say something really you completely disagree with or completely untrue. And our response in a research visit is not to try to persuade them otherwise, but to find out why they think that way. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard thing to learn. Yeah. But it allows leaders to integrate their heads and their hearts between like, I disagree, but I also have to, like, move this person and people who think like them. Yep. So how do I not just live out of my anger, but I become strategic? It's like the very foundation of strategic thinking.
0: Yep. I love that. If you could teach young, new organizers who are going to be in this, in this moment and for a long time, two or three things, it's like you really want to know this stuff. You want to really get good at these things. What would they be?
1: Number one would be invest in yourself, Hmm. like hone yourself to be the best tool for power building you can, which means wanting feedback, having a strong enough ego that you're not taking things personally. Hmm. And this is the only tool we have, George. You know, like we're not, you know, we're not working with pipes or, (laughs) you know, this is like our tool is ourselves, our maturity, our capacity for growth and learning, our willingness to like get into real messy, complex relationships with other human beings. And that capacity is the most important thing.
2: Hmm.
1: Like know your fears, but don't coddle your fears.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Right? Like take, like, what is the, you should always know what is the risk? What is the next risk for me? Not how do I stay safe? Yeah, so that's top of the list Um, leadership development, developing public relationships with people in which you're clear about your self-interest and you're clear about their self-interest and you're helping them be clear on their self-interest as well. Hmm. Like the kind of relationship we build is the, I think, the core of everything. It's so different for me in the first years of my organizing, you know, I used to go to meetings and I would, you know, hope that the people who had volunteered to be on the committee would be there. And I was really, really grateful and thankful to them all the time. Like overly so, Mm -hmm. you know, like they were always doing me a favor. Right. So our relationship was like, oh, you're doing me a favor by giving me, you know, some of your time. And they got that message right? That they were doing me a favor. When I learned how to proposition people and how to understand that they were acting out of their self-interest, the relationship changes. Then I expect people to come to meetings because they've made a commitment to me that they're going to be on this committee, (laughs) you know? And if they don't come, then I call them up and I say, what happened? You know, I actually want to know. Because like your core to me, building the power I want, and I'm core to you building what you want. Mm -hmm. And so what happened that you weren't at the meeting and I didn't know? Right. Like, that's a very different, it's so much more solid.
0: Yeah.
1: It's so much more real. You're not doing me a favor. Like, we're united by our shared self-interest. It's completely different. And so much, feels so much better. Yeah, so building the right kinds of relationships with people and investing in developing them as leaders because you're investing in your, getting yourself developed as a leader, you know, you're learning that inside out. Like, those are the top two. And then everything else flows from that. Everything else is, like, you know, right. skills and best practices and, <laughs> right?
0: All that stuff, yeah. Like, but it starts with a, with yeah. yourself and the, the ability to develop others is what I'm hearing you say, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I remember when my – first organizing mentor heard me thank somebody for like setting up tables or you know, whatever it is. Like, you know, he's kind of like, is this your organization or theirs? Like, was that a favor or was that just people doing the work that's gotta get done? It's a, what you describe is a pretty different shift and I love the description of it being much more solid. That really, that lands with me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, Pamela. I'm, this was great. I think we're gonna hear, see a lot more agitation. Coming out of this, I hope. So, oh, God. <laughs> yes, yes. Thanks for doing this.
1: Yeah, thank you, George. Really appreciate
2: it.
0: Clearly, Pamela is a believer in agitation. I can imagine if you're listening to this and don't come from an agitation style organization, this could sound pretty unnerving, and it can be. But it is agitation that helped Pamela write a new story for herself and from there help hundreds if not thousands of others rewrite their stories. Good agitation should be in service of a vision that inspires. We paint a picture of new possibilities, then agitate in that gap between where we are now and where we could be, if we take risks, expose ourselves to feedback, and get out of our own way. Done well, agitation is an act of love. The tension we create unsticks the stuck, washes away our old stories, and unleashes new human potential to change the world. Good agitation should create tension, but in the end, always feel like love. Done right, it's a beautiful thing. I'm writing about the fundamentals of organizing at georgegale.substack.com. Subscribe now at georgegale.substack.com. This podcast was produced by Fundamentals of Organizing and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Stacey Wood. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. See you next time.